You are listening to the 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, brought to you by the Royal Australian Air Force's Air and Space Power Centre. In this presentation, Associate Professor Pauline Pounds contributes with their discussion on Towards Blind Micro Drone Collision Avoidance. We join the presentation as it is introduced to the conference attendees. Alrighty, thank you. Um, so today I'm talking about towards blind micro-drone collision avoidance. And we've just had something about the power of AI in systems. I'm going the opposite side. I'm going to the end where there is very little intelligence and in trying to make sense of the world without thinking too hard. But let's start in a dark room. And it's, it's a little bit hard to see because the ambient light, but let's say dark room. And inside that room, there might be, it's actually very hard to see, but there, there could be enemy soldiers. There may be more than one. There may be people, hostiles, things in that space that you want to find that you don't want to know that you're coming. And suppose we have a drone. We want that drone to be able to enter that space and find those hostiles for us before they know that we're coming. But there may be problems. There may be obstructions. And there's a little obstruction here in, in dark gray that you can't see, uh, which I guess punctuates the idea that we're doing this in the dark. We may also have walls and internal structures and corridors. We may have doorways that we have to navigate. We may have branching passages that we will need to map. And in that space, we may also have things like furniture and obstructions, and that's a chair and a table over there in the corner. And we may also have smoke inside that space before we have an operation that we have to deal with. So a little bit away from Air Force-driven things, but we're dealing with flying things, and these are applicable in a range of applications. But today, we're interested in working in the dark. So what we would like to do is have our system find those people without having to deal with an environment where we just can't see. We can't use cameras. We can't shine a light. We don't want them to know we're coming. What do we do? So our approach is to say, OK, well, how about we have multiple drones all at once? And we'll get them to use maybe some sort of thermal system, use passive emissions. Maybe we can find things like the CO2 gas clouds produced by living beings in that space. And somehow, we'll have our drones navigate that space and find them. And when we do find them, we'll have them emit to tell us where they are. That's great, but how do we get there? How are we going to find our targets without actively emitting sensors? And I don't mean find in the sense of locate them. We can do that with passive sensors, OK, from short ranges. But how do we navigate that difficult environment? So the axiomatic approach here is to use what we have a priori available. And that is always going to be aerodynamics. If our drone can fly, we must have aerodynamics available to us. So we can use things like rotor wakes that interact with the surfaces around the aircraft to enable us to capture some information about what those obstacles would be that generate those rotor vortices. By understanding these interactions, we can infer and hopefully avoid and possibly maybe map obstacles in geometry around us. So for blind navigation, we sort of see this three steps. Step number one is to understand how rotor wakes work. And people who have a background in helicopter operations will understand a little bit about that. We have free air flight, where we sort of consider the default case. We have velocity estimation and measurement. We have proximity estimation and measurement. We also want to avoid objects passively. And we do that by being a bit cleverer. And what I mean by that is we try and use some innate mechanics of the aircraft when encountering an object to make it repel and move away. 
And finally, we have reactive control, where we can measure something about the environment and respond with just a tiny little glimmer of intelligence in the aircraft. We want to keep these things cheap so we can throw a dozen of them into a room all at once and not worry if any of them blow up. We don't want to have big helicopters carrying bigger computers to do more processing, all happening in the dark where they might fly into a wall. That would, <laughs> would not make sense. Okay, so what does a rotorwake do in open air? And I, as an academic myself, I'm you know, uh, working at a university, I, I have to be very, very clear and say that the things I'm about to show you are for, for a specific rotor RPM, a known input power and current, um, and the force distributions and flows are indicative only. Please don't show them to an aerodynamicist or they will come and they will find me in my sleep uh, because they're very particular about getting these things right. So we have a flow field that looks a, bit, a little bit like that. We suck air in from around the top of the rotor and push it out the back. And then we have little eddies circulating around the tips of the rotor where it begins to re-ingest the same amount of air constantly. We have these little vortices and they're pretty common in everything you do with a helicopter. We have a, uh, a thrust generation pattern that looks like a inverted conical shape <coughs> dying away towards the tips where the vortices suck some of the energy out through tip loss. All right, overall we get an equal symmetric thrust on either side of the rotor. But if we have translational flight through the air, we have a skewing of our flow pattern, we have less of a vortex on the leading edge, more of a vortex on the trailing edge, and our air goes out partly to the side. We have an induced flow velocity going roughly down, plus a lateral component, so we get a wake skew angle. And the important thing here is that you'll have an asymmetry in the lift generated on either side of the rotor. If we're in ground effect, that is, we're flying close to a surface directly beneath the aircraft, then what we see is we see that wake spreading out on the bottom of that surface, and we get some vorticity creating a larger loop than it would normally have. As a consequence of that, we have increased pressure below the aircraft, reduced vorticity, and we get a greater amount of lift being observed for the same amount of power we're applying. If we fly close to a wall, things get more interesting. And this is where most people working with helicopters don't have a lot of experience because you generally avoid flying close to walls in a helicopter. So in this case, what we find is that air coming down and what would be being pulled from the side near where the wall is instead has to draw from air below because the wall prevents air from moving through it. As a consequence, you get a larger amount of recirculating flow close to that wall and you get Sorry, I thought that was me for a moment. And you get an asymmetry of lift. All right, if you have the worst case scenario, we are flying close to a corner in ground effect, then these effects begin to superimpose on each other. And you get a stagnation point on the ground, increased recirculation, but not as much as you would otherwise have. And you have reduced vorticity on the other side. And so you get a very interesting lift profile, which is actually very informative to us. If you have an unstructured object, in this case some sort of flying space potato, um, then very more complex fields will be exposed. You will see turbulence, you'll see eddies, you'll see recirculation, and you may see a little bit of ground effect depending on what's going on. It's much, much harder to interpret. <coughs> All right. In addition to all of these factors, if we're using a multi-rotor drone, then we have uh, co-rotor interference, and we call this the egg beater effect, where if you have two contra-rotating rotors, 
next to each other, their helical shed rotor wake, which is the shape of the air being ejected below the aircraft, which also has a rotation, will interact with that of the aircraft next to it. And so you'll have one effect where those two rotating columns of air will superimpose to create a suction, and on the opposite side you'll have them superimposing to create a repulsion. And this was very confusing to aerodynamicists working with drones way back in the day, around 2010, where they would report that sometimes drones would suck into a wall, sometimes they'd be repelled by the wall. And we believe this accounts for that effect. So let's create a combination using all of these mechanics to avoid obstacles in a passive way. We know that we have differential lift on different sides of a rotor depending on whether we're close to a wall or not. We know that we can use the egg beater effect to create a repulsion field. So we can combine these two by constructing an aircraft a little bit differently than what you might have seen before. In this case, we can't two rotors towards the front of the aircraft back, so we get more of that ground effect happening as we come closer to a vertical wall. We can't the two side rotors sideways so that we get more of a lateral repulsion effect. In fact, they'll work together in order to angle the aircraft towards the obstacle and therefore be able to use that central propulsion um, from the egg beater effect to push them away. And the egg beater effect works by having the two sets of rotors actually co-rotate on either side of the aircraft rather than being um, positive on one set of corners and negative on the other side. We instead have the same rotational velocity on either side of the aircraft. And these together allow us to create a strong egg beater effect and ground effect repulsion field at the front of the aircraft and then have the egg beater effects cancel at the side, but then we rely on the ground effect happening at the sides of the aircraft. So mild ground effect, and only on the reverse side of the aircraft, away from the direction you're heading, do you have any sort of suction effect that could pull you in towards something. So in this case, we use fully passive mechanics built into the structure of the aircraft itself to avoid colliding with obstacles in the world. We can also do reactive control. If we know the force distribution over the rotors while we're flying, we can use that to infer the presence of obstacles. So if we can do that, we can construct a discriminator which will allow us to take appropriate reaction in order to avoid them. That sounds really cool, but how do we actually measure this? So we've come up with these lightweight sensitive force sensors that go underneath the rotor, underneath the motor, between the airframe and the thrust generation system. So as a force is generated by the rotor, whether it's a vertical force or a lateral force due to some of these um, cross-flow mechanics in the rotor aerodynamics, we're able to measure that as a couple by using some embedded MEMS pressure sensors, similar to what's used as the altimeter in your phone or in many drones out there for, for height measurement. Instead, we decap them, we pot them in a poly, uh, polymer material, usually a polyurethane, uh, and that allows us to measure the strain pressure field as the rotor maneuvers. 50 bucks, one kilohertz resolution, subgram measurement. We take all of that, we put it on a moving rig close to an obstacle which we can construct, and this is about 50 millimeters, uh, sorry, 50 centimeters, 500 millimeters worth of travel, and we built a robot which basically takes measurements about our environment, and we can use that to measure whether or not this is a real thing that we can make sense of with a drone. Uh, fully autonomous test rig gets us 40 million data points over an experiment running 11 hours straight. So there is a lot of data you can get when you run a fully autonomous robot rig, even just in a, in a lab setting. So in the free air case, where we have no objects around us, we expect roughly a flat force field. Here you see there's force sensors that we're measuring. So one and three are front and back, 
two and four side to side, so we expect them to move together as a set of curves. And here you see red and blue and uh, green and yellow are co-aligned with each other. And we expect it to be roughly flat, which is what we see. As we move towards a wall, so here we have wall effect on the left, you can see there's a divergence that starts to happen about half a rotor span away. As we move towards corner effect, this effect becomes amplified. And we can see a very strongly expressed curve, uh, even all the way from a rotor radius, uh, rotor diameter out. As we get into corner effect with ground effect, this effect becomes more noticeable again. But the really interesting one is what happens with corner effect if we're far above the ground. We get the two effects superimposing with each other. The important takeaway from this is that we can measure this effect robustly even up to two rotor radii away, which allows us to measure that actually we can see this geometry and begin to react appropriately. So this is all very early days, and there's still a lot to do. But we're at the point now where we can use these measurements we've taken to construct whole of aircraft flight dynamical models. We can start to develop our discriminator and integrate it into an onboard system that we can fly. We can tune our passive repulsion concept. There might be some fuzzy stuff in the middle as we try to understand exactly how these complex systems interact. And then hopefully something useful comes out of it. So thank you for listening. I think we'll have questions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. Um, I'm just checking. Um, can you please post questions in the chat if you have any? Um, I guess in the meantime, until this is happening, I may ask a question. Do you have one? No? <laughs> um, so what about multiple objects and other drones? I guess that gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. Absolutely. As you start to have more objects within your aerodynamic environment, you're going to have many, many more um, measurements and effects going on, which will require more effort and computational power to deconstruct them all. In addition to this rotor force sensor, we're also developing a very lightweight whisker sensor, uh, which we can coat over the entire aircraft and capture a full snapshot of the aerodynamic flow field at all points constantly uh, at that thousand kilohertz, um, sorry, thousand hertz rate, one kilohertz rate. And that will allow us to begin to deconstruct these things. But remember, we want to make them cheap and disposable. As a consequence, we probably won't go to the nth degree. But if you have a manned aircraft, imagine if you could coach your entire aircraft, like a trainer or something like that, in these sorts of whisker sensors, in these sorts of force measurement sensors, to capture the flow field dynamically at a high rate. That could be really informative. All right, thank you. Um, I can't see any other question coming from the chat. Ah, there's questions here. Short and short. <laughs> Great. Ceilings and floors, and also, would machine learning be a way to approach this, where you could look at the different effects, the different aerodynamic forces that might result from different conditions? So, in order of your questions, yes, yes, and absolutely. So, we have thought about ceilings. It's called ceiling effect. It's the reverse, but slightly less strongly expressed version of ground effect, and we can measure that as a different um, component, just based on how it changes the aerodynamic fields a little bit. Um, <clears throat> In terms of uh, machine learning and these sorts of things, absolutely. I think it's right to use machine learning to capture some of these measurements, especially if we can use something which allows us to train a model in the lab and then deploy it with a very simple onboard system, perhaps using a polynomial or a wave expression in order to capture the salient elements of that machine learning model and then allow us to compute it very quickly on a lightweight processor. Absolutely, I think it's the, the right way to go. 
Okay, thank you very much. Sounds like a lot of fun for students, the <laughs> work that you do. Thank you for being part of the Air and Space Power Centre's 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, which was proudly sponsored by principal sponsor Boeing, major sponsors L3 Harris, Rolls-Royce and Lockheed Martin. If you are looking to consume, contest or contribute to airspace power, please visit www.airpower.airforce.gov.au.